Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today I'm delighted to have a return guest, Steve Hall, who's an expert in selling into the C-suite. He is Swindon Town's only fan in Australia and self-proclaimed best-looking Swindon fan in all of the continent. So, Steve, would you mind giving us a 60 to 90 second background on who you are? Well, first of all, I have to correct you twice, Marcus. First of all, I sell at sea level, which is the point of the picture behind you being sea level. And secondly, um, there's many Swindon Town fans here, and uh, but I am definitely a good-looking, the best-looking one. Basically, I've been around since Swindon Town won the League Cup in 1969. I um, specialise in helping my clients sell more effectively at sea level. I do have some experience in channels, both as a IBM VAR in the distant past, as a someone that looked after channels and agents when I was in charge of sales and marketing worldwide for an ERP company, and also that sold to quite a number of organisations that had have channel sales strategies. So I, I know enough to make myself dangerous. <laughs> well, let's start with the C-suite first of all. What really pisses them off about salespeople? God, so many things. I'll tell you one thing that's really, really annoying at the moment is touch cadence. Okay. If you want to get a meeting, you have to have multiple touches. So, what's the best order that you do these touches in? You've got an email, then you've got follow up with a phone call, then there's voicemail, and then maybe you might send a LinkedIn message, and then you know. So, which is the optimum cadence of these fifteen touches? That's that's the one of the current things that people are talking about. Now, if you switch it around and you look at that from the C-level executive's perspective, and you realise that it's not just you doing multiple touches in various cadences, it's 8,500 other salespeople doing exactly the same thing. From the C-level executive's person, they've got this blizzard of stuff being thrown at them, none of which they care about, and all of which they ignore. Okay, so this then brings me to one of my big bugbears, which is, in my view, most CMOs, most marketing are redundant. And the way people go to market is incredibly harmful because all it is is noise and interruption. So if you're advising a vendor, whether they're a channel partner or a manufacturer of uh, tech, what would you advise them to do differently in order to actually get the attention of the C-suite and be invited in as a welcome guest? as opposed to trying to force their way in through this barrage of noise? Well, one thing I could say is that you, have a, you need a technology stack. You, know, you need your, your auto-dialers and your artificial intelligence and all of the other. Um, you need to use video, of course, and audio and, 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 and things like that, because that's modern. I could say that, but I'm not going to because it's garbage. <laughs> I'd say it's very simple. Decide who your top targets are. It might be 100, it might be 1,000, depending on how many salespeople are. But which of the company, I think this is bleeding obvious. I mean, really, it's, it's obvious. But who are your top X targets that you can handle with a direct approach? Next, who are the people in them that have the biggest problem that you can help them solve? Not something they might care about, but something they do care about right now. What are their top priorities? What's in the 10K or the 20D or whatever the documents are that are lodged in New York? What do they tell the analysts when they do the analyst briefings? What are their KPIs and their key performance and their 
core metrics, what gets them their bonus? And which of those can you help them get? That's step one. And then step two is, how do you get a message to them that basically says, you get paid more if you do X, Y, and Z. I can help you do X, Y, and Z. Can we talk? I mean, that's simple and obvious, but it works. So do your research and be relevant. Yes, pretty much it, yeah. And then you've got to get the message to them. And the best way to get an introduction is obviously by a referral. If I'm a senior sales executive at a large organization and I want to talk to a customer that's potentially going to be worth five to $50 million in lifetime value, then it's probably worth me making a little bit of an effort to get that meeting. So, hey, does my CEO know their CEO? Does my CFO know their CFO? Who do I know that knows someone that can get me in there? That's the first question. I had a customer a while back here that was owned by the biggest insurance company in Australia. And they were, they were an AI company. They were trying to get in to see a lot of the other big companies in Australia. And I was helping them. I said, well, look, your people on your board are on the boards of these companies you want to get into. Why don't you just have a chat to them? And we can't bother them. They're, they're important. So you, you want one of your low-level people to talk to a senior executive in Target when your high-level people know these guys. I mean, it's not brain science. It's brain science. Brain surgery, that's the word, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Computer science, brain surgery, yeah. Rocket surgery. That's right. <laughs> okay. One of the other routes in is through the partners. I interviewed my former AE from 18 years ago for a podcast. And uh, he shortened a sales cycle for a $100 million deal simply by going through the partners. And the, the partners are the people who have those longstanding relationships. They're advising the C-suite. And if you're not leveraging those partnerships, then you're missing a huge trick. They're not the enemy. They are partners. They're allies if you get them on side. And I think part of the problem is this misguided view that partners are competition. If you're smart, you get a smaller slice of the pie of a much bigger pie overall if you use your partners. And your partners could be worth 50 customers. So I would certainly recommend people do that. In your experience, what kind of relationship do the C-suite have with their partners who are advising them? Well, it's very much closer than, than they normally have with the vendors. I mean, once upon a time, I was the I was in charge of sales and marketing for an ERP developer, that, and uh, our software ran on, ran on AS400. Do you remember them? I believe that they had crankshafts and things. Two. The, the, the new models had two crankshafts. <laughs> and it was like it was a good machine, but IBM had this really... They were, they were so sweet. They had this really cute idea that, People bought their hardware and our software just happened to go along with it. And that the thing that won the deal was the IBM's reputation. But they knew absolutely nothing about our customers. We specialized in publishing and consumer electronics distributors because they were the industries we knew. I could talk publishing until the cows came home and I knew every single publisher of any size in Australia and a lot of them around the world. And I could talk about returns and all the things that publishers care about. And IBM would occasionally say to me, how can we help you? Can we get our call centers to call on your behalf? And I'd say, yeah, what do they know about publishing? Oh, what? well, nothing, but, you know, they just had this strange idea that people had a relationship with them. I sort of big deal to Macmillan Publishing. And I was trying to be nice. So I invited along the IBM rep once we closed the deal to meet the managing director of um, Macmillan Distribution Services here in, in, in Melbourne. 
I never did it again because he went in and he just took technology and oh now that you've now that you've bought this publishing software which is going to take you a year to implement maybe you could use your AS400 to do this and that and the other and all stuff that had a that would have taken revenue away from me and b they had no interest in so that was the last time I ever took a vendor in with me. Well, again, we see this happen an awful lot. Uh, I've been working with a large MSP, and every time they take in the rep from a particular partner of theirs that happens to do ERP, the sales cycle increases, the cost goes up in the prospect's mind, and the close ratios drop. I'm not saying this is always the case, because there are some great salespeople out there who understand their industry, their customers, drivers, and their partners. But they are few and far between. So this then raises the question, why is there such a dearth of quality enterprise salespeople out there? Well, we're moving away from the channels, but my opinion is that no one wants to train them anymore. I mean, once upon a time, you would... When I first came to Australia in 1979, I was going to join IBM. I had no experience in computers or in selling for that matter, but I set all their tests and they said, yeah, you're reasonably smart, come and join us. And if we decide to make you a salesperson, you'll do on a six-month training course where we'll teach you to sell. Now, as it happens, they then asked about my visa and they said, oh, no, so we don't take people on temporary visas. So I joined Boas instead who didn't ask. But, you know, they used to put a lot of effort into training people how to sell. Now, maybe the methods that IBM used back then were a little bit we know everything about computers, you don't, you better do as we tell you, or else we'll screw you, and that doesn't work anymore. But the fact is they put an effort into training people. Well, as now, everybody wants to hire someone that's, uh, that's made quota two years in the truck for somebody else and bring them in and throw them into the field and, um, and, and let them rip. No one wants to actually strategize. I mean, I, I, I may be being cruel there. I don't think you are. I think it's, it, it is a wild generalization, but it's accurate. And... This then comes bringing it back to the channel. Vendors have lost sight of the fact that partners are in business for their reasons, not your reasons. And if you only train your partners in the tedious technical stuff, they will spend their time talking about the tedious technical stuff, which the C-suite has no interest in whatsoever. And they will find their way to their either their place of assignment or their place of comfort, which is normally talking to IT. Now, we know that at least 80% of purchase decisions of technology occur in the line of business today. According to Forrester's research, in 2019, 80% of IT was bought by line of business managers, not by IT. And unless you understand how to have those conversations uh, across the organization and speak their language and focus on their issues, then the chances are you will just be uh, an afterthought. And the vendors that are smart about this and are training their partners to have conversations across the entire lines of business um, are the ones that will, uh, will win. So in your experience, when vendors are trying to engage, how much effort are they actually putting into their channel, training them how to sell instead of product training? Mm, probably somewhere between little and none, I would say. Right. Um, I'm not even sure that a lot of them know how to sell at, at that level. Look, at, again, it depends what you're talking about. Are you talking about um, 
vendor that's just selling software, selling services, has what's the relationship between what the vendor sells and what the channel sells? If the channel's adding any value and specialises in a particular industry, then they're going to know that industry much, much better than the, than the vendor does. And the vendor's just going to be able to offer technical stuff. I mean, again, going back to my experience, IBM came to us one day and said, look, and you've got all these customers with, um, with our hardware. They should all really have um, backup systems. You know, either a second system or else we'll provide a backup service and a you know, disaster recovery service. You know, you should go out and sell it to all their customers. And me being a nice guy, I said, yeah, sure, come in and tell me all about it. And so they came in and they gave me this big technical presentation about how they had these data centers and they could get someone up and running. If there was an earthquake in Sydney, they'd have one in Melbourne and, and these things. And I said, yeah, that sounds fair. So, you know, what do I get out of it? And they said, well, we'll give you 10%. I said, okay, and what's it, you know, what's it cost? And it cost you $100,000. So I said, so hang on, so you want me to learn all this crap, go and see all these people, persuade them about it, do an entire sales campaign, suck up a big chunk of their revenue, and then get 10% of that? Or alternatively, let me think, what else could I do? Well, I could sell my stuff and make 100%. You know, it was a bit of a no-brainer. So I think you, what you said early on is that you know, vendors have this cute perception that channels only exist to sell their stuff. Whereas, in fact, channels exist to make a profit for themselves and to look after their customers. And the vendors, the, stu- the stuff they sell for vendors is a, a, a ne- no, I won't say necessary evil, but it's, it's only one component of the entire package. Okay, let's take a slightly different tack on this. One of the things that I'm conscious of is that tech is, has become so sophisticated and so complex in the security stack, you might have 20 different vendors. In the marketing automation, you might have you know, a dozen vendors. In the sales enablement piece, you could have another dozen to 20. And part of the problem there is that from the customer's perspective, what they're really looking for is a solution that will help them fix their problems. But unfortunately, each of the vendors thinks that what they have to offer is integral, it's vital, and uh, no one can do without it. But from the customer's perspective, they don't see it that way. So what can we do in order to wake vendors up to the fact that they have to be customer-centric and partner-centric, not self-centric? That's a good question. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, particularly if a vendor is selling, sorry, if a channel is selling more than one vendor's solution, which a lot of them do, then it's their role to help the customer find the best solution using the different components from the different vendors. And how can vendors ensure that they are the ones that the partner chooses? They First of all, they have to, have to support the channel as much as they can. They've got, not, got to not compete with them. Uh, and they've got to understand what the people in the channel do. And they've got to treat them as, as true partners. And they've also got to make sure that the channel partners understand what they bring to the table from the customer's perspective as opposed to just what the technology is. Look, it's, they, I understand why the vendors have to use channels and the vendors can't be experts in every industry and every customer, but they've got to acknowledge the expertise and see how what they sell fits, into, fits in with that particular channel rather than just treat every channel, every channel partner the same. Just like no two customers are truly the same, no two channel partners are the same either. And essentially, a channel partner is your customer and should be treated as one. This then raises a a difficult question. 
in many cases, there's a one-size-fits-all approach. And certainly from a sales training perspective, it's very easy to fall into the trap of believing that your methodology is the only way forward. But what I'm seeing increasingly as a a must-have requirement are personalized playbooks on the basis of the mapping out the customer journey and the customer buying process. And I don't see anywhere near enough of that happening. And net result of that is that organizations or vendors uh, will end up in bid situations very often. And the research coming out of Stanford suggests that if you look at the actual conversion rate of buying cycles into closed deals, 60% stick with the status quo. Of the remaining 40%, three quarters of those go to the vendor that disrupts their current preferences and is able to explain the cost of not changing, is able to create white space between what they're offering and the status quo and the competition, and able to calm down their fear of the uh, the buyer about uh, future regret and blame in the event things go wrong. Of the other quarter, you have a one in four conversion rate. Now, what that means is that on average, if you are a business that is driven by bids, you have a 2.6% chance of closing. Now, what that means is one in 38.5 buy cycles actually result in closed business. Now, when you consider the cost of pursuit, the cost of generating those leads, the cost of selling, that's an astronomical investment for very scant return. And the, you start making profit probably in year three, in many cases. And I don't disbelieve those stats. I was doing them in my head as you were going through them, and I, I came to 2.5%, but uh, I think you're probably right. But, the, but that just goes to show that you need to pick your targets. The problem isn't that you're not winning, it isn't you're winning in one in 38. It means it's that you're going for one in 38 when you should Absolutely. be going for one in 19. You know, one in you know, so a one in a one in one in three, you know. And what you said about disrupting their thinking, I mean, it's not as um in vogue now, but the big thing was the bank qualified lead. Everyone wanted a bank qualified lead, but there's a, a, a heap of stuff that happens before you get to a budget. Um, I've got a nice little diagram which has got pictures of um, pictures of uh, Mr. Burns from um, The <laughs> Simpsons and the pointy the pointy haired boss from from Dilbert and um, Glue from Despicable Me or meeting near the management team. And what happens? You've got a problem, and the problem is, I don't know. We've you know COVID nineteen or we we are where our retention rates too too high or we're not making enough money. And what happens? They don't say, oh, let's go out and buy a CRM or let's go out and do whatever they say okay well what's the problem they get together and they say okay well, what what could what's the cause of this problem or oh, it's this and they decide what the cause is and they say okay well what are we going to do about it and there's 10 different potential solutions and only one of those solutions leads down the path that comes to your product so even before anything else happens they could go down a totally different path and not even be looking for what for the type of thing you're selling but supposing they come down your path what do they do then they call in the minions and they say okay go out and look for an X, 
and um, you know, see, see what's in the market. And the minions go out and they read white papers and they look at Facebook ads and they go to all these places and they come back and they say, okay, we've done our research. These are the um, top four vendors and we've spoken to them and it's going to cost about this much. It's going to take about this long. And we need to think about these things. And then you get a budget. And if you come out at the end of all that process, you're saying, oh, me too, sir. Please, sir, I'm cheapest, I'm best. Look at me, I'm in, I'm, I'm in the Gartner quadrant at the top right-hand corner, which no one cares about. And um, so if, but if you're on, the, on the other hand, if you're there at the start and you're saying, look, you know, I, know that, I know you've got this problem X and what is, what's causing it is probably this. And if that's the cause, then a good solution is this, and we can help you with that. And if you're talking to them on that level, A, you increase the number of opportunities, and B, you're the one that's advising them and telling them what the budget is and telling them how long it's going to take. And most importantly, telling them what can go wrong. Now, if you're going to do this, well, this can happen and this can happen and this can happen. So you really need to be aware of that, that, and that. And they go to the vendors and say, what do you do about this? And they say, oh, that won't be a problem. And they think, oh, bullshit. So, so you need to get in early, basically. Well, to build on that, the people who are most likely to have those insights and understand what the business is trying to achieve are the partners because they are closer to the end customer and to the C-suite than the vendors are. So why is it that still, despite the fact 75% of all products sold globally across all 26 vertical markets are sold through channels today, why is it that vendors still see the channel as the enemy? It's FOMO, isn't it? I mean, all those horrible, greedy vendors who are only small, small tin pot companies, sorry, vendors, all those small, greedy channel partners who are small tin pot companies are taking our money. Hey, it's our software. We've invested all of our hardware, but we've invested all this money in it. We're the world's leaders. We're brilliant. Why are we giving them such a large share? Let's cut down their share. Let's let them compete against each other. Let's compete with them ourselves. They want a bigger slice of the pie. And um, they should be looking at getting a smaller slice of a bigger pie. I agree. What I'm confused by is why leadership, despite all the evidence, and the fact, and particularly in the COVID era, the day of the road warrior salesperson is to a large extent at least curtailed, if not come to an end. No one in their right mind is going to be hopping onto a plane to go and meet a prospect with the possibility of being quarantined two weeks either end. Because all you need is just one person to test positive. And your customer or your prospect isn't going to want you visiting if uh, anyone finds out that you've been on a plane where you've uh, there's been a COVID sufferer or carrier. So without the channel, your international expansion is going to be massively curtailed. So. What would you advise organizations to do in terms of working more effectively with their partners in this current environment? You said earlier on why why do that people don't people realize this? And my response is we're living in a world where people are refusing to wear masks, where they believe total fake news, where you've voted in Boris Johnson and Donald Trump where people deny facts that are in their face. So nothing surprises me. I mean, let's face it, most people, not most people, many people are stupid. And it seems to me the higher you go, the dafter you get. Now, but uh, that's not, not, not universal, but there's a, there's a degree of that. What do you do about it? 
I think that you need to understand that exactly what you've said. You need to support your partners and trust your partners and have a program that treats your partners if they were the customer and supports them, gives them the um, it gives them a fair share of the of the business, gives them the support they need, guides them where they need guidance, lets them go where they know where, where they know things better, and have a process which which evaluates partners based upon the, their ability to help particular sectors or particular groups of customers rather than just how much cash they're in it. So this then raises the question about targets, about incentives, about compensation. Because one of the questions that's been buzzing through my head um, over the last couple of years is, why do compensation schemes typically drive the wrong behavior? And because I see this a lot, we see the wrong measures being applied. People in management are often so focused on activity rather than meaningful action. And I see managers focused on activity like number of dials, number of proposals, number of demos, number of quotes. and that stuff doesn't move the sale forward. It gives the illusion of looking busy and effective. But the results don't come through from people who are highly active. They come through from people, like you said uh, earlier on, who are highly targeted, very specialized, very focused on identifying and prioritizing where they should invest their effort and time. A client of mine recently who's at 220% of quota, incidentally, uh, was given a bollocking by his boss because he wasn't putting out enough quotes. Now, bear in mind, he converts 90% of the quotes he puts out because he qualifies thoroughly up front and only issues a quote if there is a very high probability of winning. He doesn't waste his time just knocking out quotes and being column fodder. So if we look at compensation... Compensation drives behavior. What are the behaviors that we should be encouraging salespeople, whether they are direct or in the channel? What are the behaviors that we should really be focusing on and really encouraging them to do more and better? Okay, well, first of all, when it comes to compensation, I'm a big fan of team-based compensation. Selling as a team game. I think there's a lot of finger pointing at the moment. Marketing aren't giving me enough leads. Well, you're not following them up quickly enough. Oh, well, they're crap leads. Well, yeah, sure they are, because I'm judged on leads. The more I give you, I'm not worried about quality. I'm worried about number, you know? So I think you need shared targets. I think you need um, shared response. You need you need teamwork, and you need to be compensated on the success of the team. And that way, the support people, the marketing people, the sales people are all working towards a common goal rather than working across purposes. There's also, as you said, quite rightly, there's no emphasis on activity. In 1977, I was a medical rep driving around the southwest of England. And I had a, you know, I had a few patches there, but I was based at one stage in um, a pub, actually, the Rosary Vard in uh, Newbridge near Oxford. Um, and uh, That was your office. They moved me to that territory and they put me up in a hotel. So I picked, I picked a pub on the bank of the Thames and did real ale and gourmet food. It was nice. But <laughs> I... Um, I was supposed to see five doctors a day. Now, I was in country Oxfordshire, and all the surgeries were miles apart. You got to a surgery, and you sat around for you know, an hour or two waiting to see someone, and then you went to the next one, and you could only see them in the mornings. It was pretty much impossible to see five doctors a day. 
And it's certainly impossible to do it and do it properly. So what did they want to do? They lied. Simple as that. They drew the, 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 the behavior that they, that they, that they um, rewarded was let, set itself up for cheating. And I mean, I made my quote and I saw stuff. I never saw five doctors a day, but you know, I just I just filled in filled in, filled in the forms and um, and, and, and uh, you know, well, if I saw a doctor, oh hey doctor, hey doctor, how you going? So that was. <laughs> yeah. So you've got to you've got to trust your salespeople. I mean, the reason for the the reason for the focus on activity is that people don't trust salespeople to do a decent job. You pick the right people, you tra- you recruit the right people, you train them effectively. And you get them to work as a team rather than micromanaging them and slapping them up over the wrist when they don't make 50 phone calls a day, then um, you'll do a lot better. So that then comes to the big, big question, which is the lack of quality in management. Because, and I, I'm not blaming middle managers, but I am going to criticize them. Managers generally are under enormous pressure. They have the most precarious role there is in the business. You know, a couple of bad quarters, they're out. They're being put under enormous pressure by senior leadership to generate revenues. They're not, however, trained in being managed. They aren't given the kind of coaching that they're expected to give to their people, which never happens anyway in almost every case because managers are hard-pressed and they're busy, 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 largely because they're not coaching, if I'm being perfectly blunt. And net result of that is that there are a lot of managers out there, 94% in our research study that we released at the beginning of 2020 were not fit for purpose. Only 6% were. Now, if we look at the results of that, only 13% of sales teams worldwide in this survey, with over a 1,000 companies responding, actually hit their quota. 44% of reps hit their quota individually, but only 13% of teams. Now, net result of this is that they're always playing a game of catch-up. And if... That's the kind of pressure that they're operating under. What advice would you give to the C-suite now that they have an opportunity to, and probably COVID is a catalyst to do this, to look very carefully at their entire marketing, sales, sales enablement, customer success, life cycle, and look at that whole process what advice would you give them in terms of restructuring and rethinking how they go to market? The key bit of advice I would give is um, don't go public, stay private, and you're not, you're not subject to the vagalities of the quarterly reporting in the stock exchange. <laughs> that's what drives it all, isn't it? Yep, agreed. Um, you know, you're, you're missing, missing your targets this quarter. I mean, IBM, I hate to keep harping on IBM, but there's some great stories. They, um, you know, at the end in December, it was always, you know, we, we've got to make our figures this quarter. What deals can you pull into this quarter? Can you discount your software to help us get this deal in this quarter? Well, you want me to discount my software to sell your hardware? No, thanks. That's not going to happen. Sorry. And, and, and our customers would know. Oh, well, look, if you, if you buy this in December, IBM will give you an extra 25% discount on their hardware. And everyone knew that. So it was a joke. And it's all, that's all driven by the, um, the stock exchange reporting cycles. Short of that, 
It's a hard question because there is there is that pressure to perform, pressure to perform. The thing I would do is say, miss your targets by a million miles this year, get rid of everyone, start from scratch, and and, and bring your targets all the way down and, and, and get your share price back up from $2 to where it was a year ago. I'm being facetious. Oddly enough, I'm not far off from that. My view is that if you look at the where fit the majority of your profitable business comes from. It comes from a tiny handful of customers and a tiny handful of your cust- uh, your partners and your salespeople. If you 80-20, the top 20%, that leaves you around 4%. Now, that 4% will generate about 80% of your profitable business. And if we then look at the bottom 20%, they will create the worst business that creates the most headache, the lowest profit, and the highest discounts. So there is an argument to remove that bottom 20%, engage that top 20%, and particularly the top four, and help them get better, and then recruit people and train people to behave more like that top 4%. Now, if we look at the partners, what we see is that 60% of the revenue comes from between 2 and 4% of the partner base. I was talking to a very large distributor, and they have 10,500 partners. And of those 10,500, 126 produce 50% of their annual revenues. Now, think about that. The amount of waste that must exist in the rest of the channel, but they feel that they need to have this big footprint to attract the vendors. That's fear of missing out again. It's the sales that wants the biggest possible territory, working on the optimistic assumption that if someone in his territory happens to come to them and buy some stuff, he'll get credit for it. Whereas, in fact, or he or she will get credit for it. So people want their territory bigger and bigger and bigger because they don't know how to handle a small territory. And I mean, it, didn't, it never happens in real event. How often does someone you know, come to you and say, oh, I'd like to buy one of those, thank you very much. It's, but, but people got this feeling they're going to miss out if they haven't got as big a territory as possible. I was talking to a guy in New York, and I said, you know, what's your territory? You know, who, who's your target customer? He said, anyone with more than, you know, more than um, 100 seats. And I said, you know, what's your territory? So it's the USA. And I said, what was that, 30,000 companies? He said, oh, yeah, probably that. And I said, how many can you actually approach yourself at any one time? 100? I said, why don't you just pick the top 100 companies that your ideal customer in New York where you live and forget the rest of the country? Um, and it's the same thing with partners. You're, you're absolutely right. You should, I'm not saying get rid of the, of the rest, but, but automate it so that you give them minimal support and you get minimal revenue, but at least they don't cause you the bother as long as they're not going to screw your customers up. Well, I think from a channel perspective, there's a really good argument to have at least a two-tier channel distribution model. And the top tier are the ones that you invest a huge amount of time, money, and effort in training. The second tier you put into distribution, and you can automate that to some degree. But actually, I'm suggesting that if you're smart, you're going to take a blank sheet of paper, you're going to look at where your revenues consistently, predictably come from, and you're going to concentrate your energy on helping those people get better. Cull the bottom 80%. And I mean cull the bottom 
of the remaining top 20, then filter those and identify which of those are really, really have growth potential and then work hard on supporting them, providing them with good SDRs, with effective marketing. And most marketing, I'm absolutely rabid about this, is utterly wasted. You, you would be better pouring fuel, uh, petrol on it and warming your home than spending the money on most of your marketing. Because all it goes does is create interruption and people don't buy from most of your marketing activity. Measuring your marketing team on the number of leads is not a good metric. You need to make sure that you're creating buzz, you're creating conversations outside of the, uh, the spotlight. You need to be supporting your partners in ways that are helping them generate and prioritize the right kind of leads, not faffing about, uh, just looking busy. And that doesn't help you move your business forward. More importantly, it doesn't serve your customer. I talked earlier about personalizing playbooks. Customers buy in their own way. And if salespeople and partners don't adapt to how the customer is planning to buy, then chances are you'll be trying to shoehorn them into your sales process. Now, in your experience of dealing with the C-suite, when a salesperson is putting them under pressure, what do they do? <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't help. They know that the salesperson's got a quota. They don't care. Um, they don't care about their deadlines, unless, of course, they can leverage it to get a much better price, which, they, which they'll do that. But they, they make their own decisions in their own time. You can certainly find ways to increase those decisions by showing them one thing you can certainly do is say, okay, well, you know, when do you want to get the results of when do you want to get the results that we're promising you? Well, if you're going to do that, let's work backwards from those results to what to when you have to start. And you know, if you're going to implement this software or move to this managed services provider or whatever it might be, then you know, these are all the things that we have to do, and this is how long it takes. And therefore, if you want to start on the first of January, you really need to make a decision by the 31st of March. The things things you can do, but Pressure to sign a deal and close a deal. I hate, I hate the expression "close a deal." You should be opening a relationship rather than closing a deal. Just counterproductive, basically. And I've got a problem with buyers' buyers' journey too, and mapping the buyers' journey because a couple of things. First of all, every buyer is different. Secondly, I don't think that many customers actually have a defined buyer's journey. They don't even know it themselves. How can you know it? And thirdly, it's not a buyer's journey because there's multiple people in the buyer and each of them, each of them meander their own little way around it until they get to something. So these pictures of linear buyer's journeys are a total waste of time. Oh, agreed. The point being here that you need the, the right kind of account coverage uh, we did a research study that we published in March. And what we found was that the average salesperson selling into enterprise was speaking to two or fewer people uh, within the enterprise. We know that there's at least seven plus influencers within a buying decision. And uh, increasingly, where a crisis occurs, those committees grow. And if you are not mapping out all the different stakeholders, power, Sub-decision makers, influencers, recommenders, specifiers, technical buyers, user buyers, financial buyers, who are friends, foes, 
and uh, neutrals or unknowns, who has high, medium or low influence on the deal, then the chances of you actually having any visibility or control over that process are nil. Uh, but most salespeople turn up, then they set, you know, whip open their market stall, they vomit out product information, and then they wonder why they don't get invited back. The research suggests that seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting. Now, I was speaking to uh, someone yesterday, and on average, it costs them eight grand to get in front of a C-suite player, on average. So tell, them I'll do, tell them I'll get them in front of one for six, six grand. <laughs> on average, it costs them eight grand. <laughs> now, when you think about the fact that seven out of eight don't get invited back, that suggests that there is something massively awry in that initial contact. What, why are they wasting so many first meetings? Because then just not getting invited back, it seems crazy. It is correct. I mean, you, you raised two separate points there. One is the number of decision makers once you're in the company, and the other is how do you get in the, com- in the company at the right level in the first place. So I'll address the first second, if that makes sense. When you get a meeting with a senior executive, they've taken that meeting for a reason. And that's what you should talk about when you get in there. But most people talk about themselves. I did some work with a major, with one of the largest software companies in the world. I may have mentioned this before. And I got them a heap of meetings with senior executives in banks and credit unions here. And they were on the phone and we, we had the calls transcribed. And you look at the calls, it says, oh, hello, Mr. Hello, Mr. Head of Finance in a Bank. Thanks for agreeing to talk to us about how we can help you to get more, to, to sell more home loans. But first of all, let me tell you all about us. We have a massive American company. We're in all these different, all these different industries, and we've got all these company customers that are anything to do with you. And my job is to live with a mid-market because you're only a mid-market person. You're not a really important person. And um, and we're in the the top right-hand quadrant for customer for customer satisfaction. And there was literally two pages of him talking before the bank executive said, "Huh, you know." And so that's what that, you know, people don't research for the meeting, they don't prepare for the meeting, and when they get in the meeting, they don't talk about what the customer's issues are, they talk about themselves, or they do discovery, which means that let me go in there and ask you daft questions like what keeps you awake at night or what are your top three problems? When you should be going in and saying, okay, from my research, I see that your share price has gone down by 20% in the past year, and you've attributed that in your annual report to the fact that this has happened and this has happened and this has happened and what your priorities this year are, and that, that, and that. Now, from our experience in other customers like you, one of the things that's helped fix this is this, this, and this, and we can help you. Am I right or am I, am I making the wrong assumption there? That's, a, that's what they should be saying, or worth that effect. So that then raises the question about the business acumen of salespeople because most of them don't really understand business, in my experience, and they really don't understand people. It's meant to be a people business, but in my experience, very few human beings really understand other human beings, and they certainly don't understand themselves that well. So where should the training focus be for sales reps and for partners in terms of understanding so that they can have those conversations? Well, I think they should be looking at some of the very, the most modern, up-to-date research by a guy called Dale Carnegie. Oh, no, he's not that modern, is he? Come to think of it. You know, that should, that should read about human nature. I mean, it's, it's, human nature never changes. 
Dale Carnegie and, and, and said, you know, people care about themselves, talk about them. They care about their problems, not yours. There's a lot of great books. You know, to me, psychology, reading about people and, re- and learning about business are the key requirements for a salesperson. And therefore, if you don't understand that, you should, either shouldn't be selling, you certainly shouldn't be selling at sea level, or you should be learning bloody quickly as much as possible. I mean, one of the reasons I think I did reasonably well in sales, I didn't start as a proper salesman until I was 42, and I'd worked in a whole heap of manual jobs on the shop floor in farms and sweeping floors and building motorways and cutting metal. And I'd also worked uh, in, in service and then, then when I got a proper job, I, um, I was in support and I worked supporting a whole heap of different industries. So I got a, a really good overview of business from a worker and from dealing with senior executives and dealing with users and managers. And so that gave me a, a pretty good perspective. And I've also been always been very involved in human behavior and psychology. And I think they are you shouldn't be learning sales until you learn people, as you said, until you learn business, not at executive level. And you also need to know their language because everyone speaks at least two languages. CEOs speak CEO language and they speak whatever their industry language is. And unfortunately, most vendors speak vendor language and it's like an Eskimo talking to an Aborigine. Interesting. Okay. What are you paying attention to in terms of what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment that you think is really relevant, really current? Well, a couple of I've read some good books recently. Um, Christopher Voss, I think I may have mentioned that to you before. Um, Never split the difference. Yeah, which um, he was an FBI hostage negotiator. Negotiator, and there's also a book by the guy that hired him at the FBI, which I can't remember the name Barry of. Barry Lesnar. You recommended it to me now that I think of it. I had to chat to him. Good book. Yeah, and um, I've always liked Robert Cialdini's books. Um, you know, influence and uh, persuasion. Oh, now there's a guy, Dan Ariely. I don't know if you know him. Yep. He writes good books about, about uh, psychology and human, human behavior. And then in terms of podcasts, I, I hate to pull your chain, but I think your stuff is great. You know? I think um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of good podcasts and, and information out there, but you've got to be selective because there's an awful lot of garbage too. <laughs> I did a keynote presentation to a managed service provider their sales team last week, 75 people. And uh, in it, I said, don't believe everything people tell you, particularly me, because I screw up too. People don't think critically. We have a situation here in Australia where they're just um, they're trying to trying to de-emphasize the social social degrees and you know BAs and get everyone to do BSCs. So the funding that they're, they're giving lesser funding to the arts. And that's ridiculous because university doesn't teach you a job. It teaches you to think critically. And you need to be able to think critically to work and to live because there's so much false information around it. Just people, people will take something that's totally false. Oh, you know, the media doesn't talk about this, but there's this secret conspiracy of giant lizards to take over the government. And uh, please copy this to five friends. And people say, oh, that sounds reasonable. And they copy it to five friends, you know. You need to, you need to think critically of it, I think. I think there are some really important skills that people can should be developing. Uh, I recently interviewed a guy called Jay Heinrichs, who wrote a fabulous book called Thank You for Arguing, and it's all about rhetoric. And actually, Aristotle had it banged to rights 3,000 years ago. And if you don't understand how to argue your case, how to listen effectively, so... 
I would suggest that people uh, read Just Listen by Mark Goulston and Listen Up by Karen Manfield. That's coming out in December. I think people also need to learn how to endure the silence because the average length of time, Gong did some research on the basis of over 10 million calls, and the average length of time a salesperson could keep stum before they filled the, uh, the silence with the sound of their own voice was 0.7 of a second. Uh, Miller Hyman did a similar study about 10, 15 years ago, and it was 0.6 of a second. So we're not very good at listening. And I've, in my experience, I've never listened or questioned my way out of a sale. I've talked my way out of plenty. And if I look at David Sandler, David Sandler's library was two-thirds marketing and the rest was psychology. Very little on sales. Because actually sales, the problem I think is that so many people in sales are looking for the magic bullet. They're looking for the technique. Now, any technique that isn't founded or grounded in really good fundamental principles around psychology, ethics, the right intent, is just a move. And when C-level executives have faced hundreds or even thousands of salespeople, they see through the technique. And someone on LinkedIn yesterday contacted me, and he used a very obvious embedded command, uh, which is comma, like me, comma. And the idea is that I meant to like this chap. So I pointed it out to him, and he got terribly defensive and very upset with me. But don't use technique for technique's sake. Technique is a, a, a means to an end. You need to have human conversations with other human beings. And C-level executives are human beings. They wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat because they've got a $3 billion P&L that they're going to miss because whatever happens, they've got a bunch of salespeople out there who are not producing. Their marketing is shit. They're under increased pressure. Uh, COVID has annihilated their pipeline. Well, actually, I rephrase that. COVID exposed the weakness. Warren Buffett has a lovely expression. When the tide goes out, you get to see who's been swimming naked. And all COVID did was expose the weaknesses. And you know, these people are human beings. They need our leadership. They need our guidance. They need our help. They need our support. If they knew how to fix their problems, they would have. So my take on this is we absolutely need to start really refocusing on having real relationships with other human beings. And that means occasionally or often you need to STFU. Shut the fuck up. Listen. Absolutely. Pay attention. And attention is a currency. You pay one of the, attention. One of the most valuable courses I went on before as a sales guy, I was in charge of support at Boas, and uh, we went on a selling for support people course. And the thing that I remember from that was the value of silence. And I've always remembered that. And... Uh, and this was in handling customer complaints. When a customer complains, just shut up and listen. And I've always been very comfortable with silence ever since. And sometimes when people negotiate with me, they'll say, you know, I'm not happy with this. I just shut up. And they tell you more and they tell you more. And eventually they run, them, run themselves out. So that, that aspect, I quite agree. And then 
what were you saying towards the, the very end? You, you made another point, which I was going to speak to, but I've forgotten because I had a stroke two years ago, so my memory sucks. That uh, you should listen to human relationships. Oh, human relationship. Yeah, that's right. I, look, I always tell people, I do ocean swims, or, or at least I used to until recently, and I will again. And when I'm in the, when I'm in the water, if a shark comes along, they're not going to choose between, they're not going to know who's a janitor, who's a serial killer, and who's a CEO. They're all just legs to them. So as you say, people are people, and they've got the same fears and hopes and doubts and families. I've got a little triangle, a little um, pyramid, which I show people. And I say, okay, what does, who, who do senior executives care about? What do they care about? And they, first and foremost, they care about their friends, their family, their children, their lovers, their pets, their ferrets. And then business-wise, they care about the chairman and the board and the shareholders and their key customers and their peers and their direct reports and the rest of their employees. Then their existing suppliers, then their sales and their salespeople. And then somewhere right down the bottom of the pyramid, there's 8,000 salespeople that are trying to sell to them. And until you realize that and look at it from their perspective, you then you've got to think, okay, how can I be relevant to those people and get their attention when they've got all these other people that are much more important to me in their eyes that want their attention too? Well, that then raises the question of how do you become your C-suite's partner to solve their problems so that they come out of the goal and it's you and them kicking into an open goal against their problem. Well, you don't do it in 10 minutes, that's for sure. And you don't do it, you don't do it using embedded commands and, um, and matching and mirroring and things like that, which I, which I, I did NLP, and there's some interesting stuff there, but I came to the conclusion that matching and mirroring is a great result, but an, an awful cause, if you see what I mean. In other words, you, you end up matching and mirroring people because you're in the pool rather than vice versa. But I think, well, first of all, you've got to speak their language. You've got to show them that you understand their situation and potentially you may be able to help them. And as you build the relationship and you are you're going to be genuinely interested in wanting to help them. I mean, the, the, the key way to build rapport is to be interested, not to pretend to be interested, not just to sit and listen and ask clever pre-prepared questions, but to want to know, to be prepared to say, okay, well, look, what you're saying makes sense, but I didn't understand that. Can you explain it again? And these other people did this. How relevant is that to you? You're going to want to help them get a solution. You're going to become a joint problem solver with them. And that implies that you have the capability of helping them. And I think you've, uh, to summarize, it's about your intent. If your intent is to sell to them, you will get reflected back what you project out. If your intent is to help, to serve, to identify, is there a good fit? And if there isn't, get the hell out of Dodge as quickly as possible so you stop wasting their time. And if you can help them, then help them. Okay, Steve, we, we need to wrap up now. How can people get hold of you? All of my um, contact details are on LinkedIn. I have my own hashtags, Steve Hall Sydney, and uh, selling at sea level. So if you search out of those hashtags on, on, on LinkedIn, you'll find me, and on Twitter for that matter, uh, but more LinkedIn. And so my phone's there, my email's there, my, my somewhat digitally enhanced picture is there, and my love for Swindon Town is there. <laughs> Excellent. Steve Hall, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please get in touch at marcuskauke at me.com or mcauchi at sandler.com. 
And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please get in touch with me either via LinkedIn or email and connect us. In the meantime, stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.